Satori Magazine is a space for thought-provoking content. By exposing ourselves to ideas, thoughts, experiences and life lessons, we might stumble across something which gives us new insight or a change of perspective. I'm Lawrence Rice, and I've been chatting to people about life, inspiration, the universe, and whatever else pops up along the way. What you're about to hear is the edited results of those recordings. The voices you will hear belong to Pico Ayer, Lawrence Torcello, Elisha Goldstein, BJ Miller, Pani Pal, and Lynn Didanen. Today's main contributor is Lynn Didanen. Apologies for my unprofessional uh, Zoom skills. We're still learning. We're still learning all these things. <laughs> we are still learning. Everything. That's another thing about talking about um, age, etc. I, I stop that. Um, I feel like I'm still learning. I mean, there's so mm. much to learn. For example, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, what I love, I, I use Kindle for a lot of my reading. Okay. And what I like about Kindle is that I can look up words instantly, underline a word, and I get a definition. Mm. Because as much as I've read and as much as I've learned and as much as I've used words all my life, I'm still running across words that I don't know the meaning of. And I love it. I just love, you know, for a while there I was making lists of words. But now I just look them up. I've gotten a little lazier about that. But mm. do you know the author of the the detective stories, the Douglas detective stories? I'm trying to think of her name. She died a few years ago. Anyway, this this author, I read all of the Douglas mysteries in a row, mm. and I started to notice that there were there's vocabulary that she used over and over and over and I start I made my own lexicon of these of these and then I write I wrote my own mystery based upon those words really oh okay perfect it's very very funny it's very funny wonderful stuff wonderful stuff and that was an example of me like paying attention to vocabulary paying attention to words and learning the words. It wasn't necessarily in this case that I didn't know the words. It was that I noticed how she used these words over and over. It was very fun exercise. And it was an exercise. How do you like to inspire yourself? How do I like to inspire myself? Mm. Is that that the question? That's the question, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that is a really good and interesting question. So I I do have to inspire myself because we've had dark, sort of gloomy days uh, yeah. in Western Washington. And um, so it's easy out here in the woods to just kind of say, oh, let's just go back to bed, shall we? Mm. And I don't really want to do that. So I take long walks. Mm. So at about 7.30, I got the dog and we took a walk up to our well house. We have a big well way up in the woods okay. and it serves several several households here. Oh right. And uh, so that's the that's the walk. Mm. Now the thing is that this is a rainforest this area. Right. It's so lush and we've had so much rain that green everywhere. 
I mean, we have the the Douglas fir; they're green all year long, and the and the larch and the and the cedars that that they're always green. Yeah. But in the last two months, the ferns have grown madly. I always think of Dylan Thomas, but at the fern the fern hill. We have the the base under all the trees up as you look up into the woods. Ferns everywhere, mm. huge ferns. They've just grown like mad this year. But the inspiration also is not just those walks and the, and looking closely at the plants and a lot of fungus, by the way, lung fungi in the woods this year. But um, overhead is the raven. And it has become a thing now mm-hmm. that the raven flies overhead i can usually not see raven but i hear raven raven croaks at me in the morning as i take my walk and today as i looked up the hill there was a doe bounding along and a dog went wild but these things as a beginning of a day are so inspiring now what do they inspire well they make me think about Life, living things. Um, today, I was thinking about mm, just the, the the nature of seasonal change and how how things, how I watch things with my own eyes coming to life, growing, and then eventually finding that their lives are finished mm. and they they die and. I'm at the age, I'm almost 80, so I'm at the age where those kinds of thoughts are very helpful to me uh, mm. because I I see it as a cycle of life, a circle of life. Um, there's no end to it. It just keeps moving through these cycles. And so I witness that on my walks, and I think about that. Yeah. Uh, everything has, ah, oh, like this almost glowing sense to it of the spark of life inside and uh, so yes it's very it's these walks are really helpful to me and i can't believe i haven't done them all my life Mm. because they are so so good and then i feel physically good so i'm inspired to keep moving through the day and and uh, do the work that i like to do and yeah. yeah, so yeah, I think that's a those are the big that's the big inspiring piece of my life right now. I've lived in a couple of different houses and when you inevitably move out of the house, you 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 pack down everything in your in your bedroom and everything's gone and then all your bags and boxes go on the bed on this bare mattress. You've got the bare walls and you maybe have half an hour before the taxi comes. And it's the, the image in my head is always of this bed with all these boxes of cardboard and bags on the bed. And I wonder if it's quite a specific feeling because it pushes you into the present moment because there's nothing, you've stripped all reminders of the future and all memories of the past have gone into these boxes. And you're never in this situation normally. I don't know. It, it, I, I feel like that, like it's funneling you. In, you. There's nowhere else for you to be but in that moment. And I mm. wonder what you thought of that. Uh, two, two things, and I'll, I'll pretend that they're related. Um, so 
my, my most vivid example of what you're describing is I lost literally everything I had in the world in a, in a wildfire in mm. California. Uh, at 6 p.m. that evening, I was in my family home in the hills of Santa Barbara. And um, two hours later, I was stuck on the mountain road, surrounded by 70-foot flames, watching the worst fire in Californian history at that time pick apart um, every object in my home and wipe out the future as mm. as I saw it. And so when I, at the end of that evening, I went to an all-night supermarket and I bought a toothbrush and that was literally the only thing I had in the world. And after a period of adjustment, I did realize the seeming calamity was a liberation and partly a chance to start again and remake my life much closer to the life I'd always wanted. Because of course, as with anyone, including you leaving the boxes or taking the boxes away from your bed. Mm. When the insurance company said, we'll replace all your possessions, I realized I didn't need 90% of the clothes and books and artifacts I'd accumulated. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to what we were saying about don't know. I, I lost my handwritten notes for my next three books, which is probably my next eight oh. years of my professional life. But suddenly, stripped of that, I was I was freed of it. And I thought, I can go in any direction now. I don't have to follow upon the path that I probably rather clumsily and mistakenly laid out for myself. I can write the kind of books um, I never dreamed of writing, partly because I have no notes. And partly mm. because I have no physical home, uh, I can choose to spend my time in what feels like my spirit's home or, or go anywhere. And then I really started spending much more time in Japan, which had always felt... Um, more emotionally connected to me than than California. Um, so the, that's the first part of, of, of the answer, that again, um, the things that seem devastating at first can be liberations. Yeah. Uh, and the second part is that for many, many months thereafter, I was sleeping um, on the floor of a friend's house and another friend saw me there and he advised me to go to this uh, retreat house three hours by car up the coast. And when I did, uh, as with many a monastery, I stepped into a radically empty room. There was a bed and there was a desk, but they, of course, didn't belong to me. No boxes on top of the bed. And like many people, I've never felt so full as in that empty room. Mm. Uh, partly because as I emptied, entered that space of positive silence, free from telephone and television and internet and, and just uh, brought back to the ocean stretched out above me, the blue sky above, the golden pampas grass all around. I was no longer con conducting arguments with myself or somebody else. I wasn't thinking about yesterday, as you put it a minute ago. I wasn't mm. really thinking of the future. I was more present than I ever have been and there, therefore richer and fuller than I ever would be. Uh, and, and again, it, it's a cliche now to talk about being present, but I think the pr more present we are, the, 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 the richer we are. And our possessions often distract us from that presentness. You know, that we all know we're living in the age of distraction, and we mm. all know that attention is when we're happiest. I'm happiest of all when I forget the time, I lose all sense of myself, I'm deeply absorbed in a conversation or a film or concert or whatever it might be. And I'm least happy when I'm all over the place and multitasking and scattered. And I think sometimes we run away from where we're happiest and richest and then wonder why we're feeling so miserable and, and impoverished. But again, as mm. I've been saying, and I think you too also, um, it's a choice. And at any moment we can try to sort of bring ourselves back 
to where we'll feel um, the richest or not. For example, um, in, our, in the middle of our lives, imagining we're going to have to move tomorrow. Or, and do I really need all those bo books I'm about to put in the box? Or can I actually feel happier if there's far less to pack? So if you notice, think about a time when you've been really stressed or anxious about something. You notice that your breathing automatically becomes shallow and, and fast. Mm. Other times, if you're feeling happy, you find that your posture changes, right? And, and when, when we're stressed, we kind of adopt this closed posture. Mm. When we're happy, we're more expansive. We're breathing deeply. Our breath is, you know, slower. Our heart rate is slower. And that's not a coincidence. This is because the, our respiration and our limbic systems, our emotional centers are connected. So our emotional states affect our respiratory state, right? So when we're anxious, we breathe quicker mm -hmm. and more shallow. Sure. But knowing that, and again, this is where we have agency and control. Now that I know that those two systems are linked, well, what a fantastic thing. Mm. I can now, in a moment of anxiety and panic, use my breath to reverse the emotion or to steady the emotion. So this is why we say in a, in a, in a moment of anxiety, take a deep breath or all the deep breath practices. And when we do that, that that's a signal to the brain that, oh, things must be okay. Because yeah. you're breathing deeply. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, this, the, you're influencing your parasympathetic nervous system through your vagus nerve, uh, which, and the vagus nerve is um, a nerve that runs not from our brain to many different parts of the body, including your lungs and your heart and your, uh, um, uh, and your gut. And so uh, breath practice on a consistent uh, basis the mechanism that that helps us with our emotional regulation is primarily through um, developing the strength of your vagal system so that more and more when, as you practice, you notice that it's not that you're not going to be upset again. You will still, you know, that fight or flight system will still be triggered in a, mm. in a moment of stress. Yeah. But you build your capacity to become aware more quickly that, oh, that's, that's happening right now because you develop this better sense of body awareness. And then you can come back. So you, it's basically, again, coming back to that idea of are you going to be stuck in your karmic or old habitual patterns or in that moment of presence or realization, you can kind of step back and say, hey, wait a second. Oh, I, that's where I'm caught right now. And I have a choice. I, I can continue to do that or I can choose something different. And now I choose to step back and not identify with that so much and take control of my breath right now so that I can shift my emotions and, and uh, show up in a more skillful way. What's most important is what translates into our everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about it a little while ago. I went, I went for a run, and there was about three instances where I held doors open for people or gates and stepped as far as I could out of people's way and uh, got no thanks for it all the way home. And I sort of was saying to a friend of mine, um, like, hey, you know, what a wonderful run, 
but I did these things. Got no thanks, Alistair. I got no thanks. And, and that's, this was great because that, that's really, because he was like, well, don't forget that you did those things to help those people and not to be thanked. And I love it. I, I, there are so many times I, where I need to be reminded of things that I already know. And when something hits you at the right time and has that sort of resonance that can change you in a way that it hasn't done before. And it was just such a beautiful sentiment from him. And it, ever since then, I've been happy enough to think, you know, thanks, being thanked is great. But yeah, I do these things to help and to help the universe turn a little bit more, make the world better. You see what you just did? You, you just reinforce the point that putting the right people around you yeah, yeah. really has, you know, that, that elevates you. Yes. Right. And that's what it did. It shifted your mindset into a place that was more aligned really with, 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 with your values and what made you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Maybe more, more likely now to continue opening doors for people where even I didn't get thanks. I'm not going to continue opening these doors for you, but now, now just, Oh yeah, nope, that's right. That's exactly what I want to keep doing. Right. Well, what's your relationship with the universe? <laughs> well, the, I one 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 lovely. I don't. I can't time any of these sort of thoughts where I actually started really believing them. Again, it's sort of like there are these ideas of of life or these ideas of a way of being in the world, and of course, there's the experience of actually being those things, living those things. It's not. Mm. So, uh, so I have had ideas about what I am in the universe, but when I, the more I'm, the farther I'm along this way and I'm getting more and more in tune with this gut sense, I, I am, <laughs> I can't <laughs> like human nature is nature. I cannot remove myself from the universe. So I am the universe Yeah, you know, that, that, now just seems at one point I could imagine that as a logical statement. Mm -hmm. um, and now I appreciate that as also a, a felt, a, a felt truth. I know that in my bones and another word, and, and, and if you follow that out, in other words, I'm not alone because the universe contains everything. And so I'm part of everything and everything's in this dynamic tension flowing around, bouncing off each other. So it also makes me realize if I am nature, if I can't be outside of it, if I am the universe, I can't be outside of it. Then I, then I've got it. I'm everyone's my neighbor in some way. It doesn't mean I, I you know, I get in fights and whatever. I don't mean this to be, uh, I do, I guess I do kind of love everybody. I kind of do love everything. I mean, I think that is kind of the biggest love where you're not, Rilke has a beautiful quote about this, where you're not picking and choosing. Um, so I, you know, mm. anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but when you ask that question, it prompts these kinds of thoughts. Yeah. And what I guess I'm trying to get at is, you know, uh, 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 the universe, I am, I am it, it is me. It, I get to feel there for forever. Like I belong, I belong. Yeah. no matter what I'm going through. Can you tell me about a method of living? Mm, a method of a method of living. This is <laughs> I can't recommend this to anyone the hmm. way I live because I'm I guess I, I consider myself even among my 
crazy friends. I'm pretty eccentric. And so I have this, I'm, and I'm also very disciplined. I've been, I've done a lot of writing in my life. I've done, of course, I was a teacher, a faculty member at, at, a, at a college for 30 years. And I, I live and, ha- and still live a kind of disciplined life. I have things that I know I want to accomplish in the course of a day or a month or a whatever. I keep, I keep notes. I write notes to myself. I say, don't forget this. So I'll just tell you, one thing that I do every day now is that I take online Indonesian lessons. And okay. mm. I, I think that might be a surprise to you. Well, the thing is, I was in the United States Peace Corps in 1962 to 64, and I lived in Sarawak, which when I first went to Sarawak, it was a crown colony, and then it became part of Malaysia. So this this period of my life, those two years, I was quite young, and it was um, it, extremely formative, extremely mm. formative to be there during that period. And um, so part of, part of my training to go to be a Peace Corps volunteer was Malay, to learn Mahasam Nayu. And mm. um, so I learned it, and then I mostly worked in that language, even though I was mainly with Badayu, indigenous people, and uh, Chinese, mostly Hakka Chinese in, in the, the town where I live, Bao. Um, but Malay was kind of the, the uh, you know, the common language yeah. that everybody could use. Yeah. And so I, I learned it. I got to be able to work pretty well in that language. And then I went back um, 1983, I think it was, and uh, lived in Kuala Lumpur. And so language again, I used the language and I did field work for my dissertation, my PhD mm. uh, in Kelantan. So I was working in the language. And then, well, I've been back once since. That was two years ago. And so I've, the language is in my head somewhere there. Mm. And I decided during this COVID period, I decided I'm going to get that language back. And I'm going to be better than I ever was. And uh, so I do. I, I study. It's a very short lesson. I do 15 or 20 minutes a day. Okay. So that, that, is, a, that is a habit. That is, and I, I think personally, I think that habits such as those yeah. are very useful. Yeah. Uh, just studying something, learning something, keeping oneself on something that yeah. you enjoy and mm. that, that you're... It has so many repercussions to know that language again. And and uh, so that's enjoyable. I also do, I like to do things with my hands. So I've learned to weave in the last two years. Mm. Now I'm telling you new habits because mm. it's been this long period. I mean, I wasn't always in the woods all the time, yeah. but over the last two, two and a half years, I have been pretty much at home. Mm. And so I have developed, I think, ways to keep myself not just busy. I don't like when people say, oh, you keep yourself so busy. No, it's not that. Yeah, it's yeah. not busy to yeah. be busy. It's it's like enriching things. So yeah. learning to weave, learning to weave has, and I have, um, I have three looms now. Actually, I've got four looms. But anyway, I've got a floor loom 
that I'm just learning to use. And I've got two other smaller looms, but one's a pretty good size, about 36 inches wide. And what has happened as I've been learning how to do it, the physical aspects of it, um, I've been studying it. And if you start studying weaving, hmm. you learn the history of textiles. You learn cultural differences among weaving techniques. You hmm. learn, I mean, it's just, a, it's a world because weaving has been around as long as there have been human beings. So again, the anthropology comes in, my interest in cultural differences and cultural histories. So I weave and I weave a little bit every day. And it's fabulous. It's just so much fun. And I've started now a new way of even approaching the weaving, which is when I have an experience with um, something. Like I was just in British Columbia and I went to visit the Dukabors. And that's a long story of who the Dukabors were. But anyway, in, in brief, they're a religious group from Russia who came because of oppression, came to British Columbia in the late late 1800s, early 1900s, of mass migration. And um, so I, I, I visited a museum, a Dukabor museum, and I saw some of their weavings. So now I'm doing, I've got two things on two different looms, two projects that I will call Dukabor because they're inspired, either the color or the techniques, uh, by what I experienced there. So I'm pulling my experiences in the outside world into the things that I'm creating in yeah. my house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's just fun. It's just, you know, it's just fun letting my imagination go um, being informed by the Duke of Boar's work and, and their history and then bringing that into a piece of weaving. I love how you've managed to find the anthropological element there. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't not do it. I mean, it's like it's like when I was writing almost full time. It's kind of those things that you can't not do. It's just so much that you have to do it. It's mm. I don't know how else to say it, but I can't not be an anthropologist when I'm when I'm seeing things or experiencing things in that outside world. It, it just is a part of how I see the world. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm grateful for it. I love it. I love how I see the world. If you have a creative block, instead of working harder at that piece which you're having trouble with, just, you know, clearing out a, a drawer which you've been meaning to do, or, or trying a new technique? Well, again, my, my, my mind goes directly to the science of creativity and, and, and a little bit about how our brain works in, in, um, in, in times like that. So absolutely, what you said is, is, is correct. So if, you know, if you're feeling that, that kind of block from a creative standpoint, um, essentially, by taking a break or doing something repetitive, you know, might, you might go out for a run, you might take a shower, you might cook, mm. uh, or you might have a conversation. Um, essentially, you're quietening the chatter in your, in your um, quote unquote, thinking brain, your prefrontal cortex. Mm. And this gives your subconscious centers a little more space 
to assimilate the many different ideas um, that are that are swirling. Yeah, yeah. Um, but usually, it's it's harder for those ideas to come to the surface into conscious attention if your mind is just caught in the mundane chatter of of everyday life. And so, any any activity that quietens that chatter, so it might be meditation, might be going for a walk, it might be um, cooking, or or just thinking about something else, mm. then the amplitude of the of the of the brain waves that are associated with those ideas at the subconscious level, which are colliding with like your memories and your past life experiences, to produce that novel insight. That's like the aha moment, or yeah. like oh wow, you know. Yeah. Now I you know I, I just I just figured it all out. Um, so yes, it's very important to give your brain just that little bit of space um, for those for those creative ideas to come up to the surface. Tell me, what's your relationship with the universe? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, and that, now, I thought about that question. The universe is, and I was a, an amateur astronomer, astronomer for a while. And the universe is something, well, I know this may almost be an esoteric moment, but I remember the very first time I saw Saturn through a telescope. Hmm. And we used to have amateur astronomers in Olympia who would take their bigger telescopes, pretty big size telescopes downtown into parking lots and on clear nights offer that you could look through their telescopes. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it was lovely. It really was lovely. And I did that one night and I saw Saturn and I saw the rings. and. I almost wanted to see if they had pasted a picture at the other end of the telescope. Yeah. It was so unbelievable. It was so clear and bright and amazing. Mm. And I I just couldn't believe that I had lived my life up to that point without ever actually seeing this. And it's been above me all these years. Yeah. I mean that's that is a real relationship to it to a universe to a galaxy to understanding our solar system and of course I was completely hooked. Yeah. I I got telescopes and and I I started going to the meetings. I there were guys there and they would have they would build these telescopes in their apartments in Seattle. So they'd have to have cranes to help them get them out of the apartment and <laughs> load them on flatbed trucks and take them to the mountain in order to do the view. I mean, it was just the most amazing group of people, but they were all enchanted mm. by what's beyond us. I, I know we're talking about the physical universe now, of course. Sure, yeah. So they would do them at the time of the Pleiades uh, star, the meteor shower. So I remember one year, well, the first year I went, it was the middle of the night, uh, because that's when you get out to watch meteor showers, and everybody was outside and looking up and watching the meteors come down. It was clear as anything, but 
I had, I heard these men, probably 200 men, applauding when a meteor came down. That was the most astounding thing for me. And it, it taught me something about men that I didn't know. And it taught me something about the wonder and the awe and what wonder and awe can do for the human spirit. That those guys up on a mountain in the middle of the night were applauding and cheering for a meteor to come out of the sky. It was just wonderful. So that, that I would say, is part of my relationship to the universe. That the wonder and the awe, you know, it's just... It's just amazing to me what's out there. And I should do it more. I haven't done it a lot of this for the uh, last, last few years. But that was, a, that was a big part of my life for a while. And, and it still is in the sense of the wonder of it all. Mm. It's just, <laughs> I, love, I love all that stuff. I read it. I read it. My relationship to the universe, mm, I guess it's awe, it's wonder, it's surprise, it's I want to know more. And, you know, one thing I think about aging, I think about, ooh, I wish I could live 50 more years just because I want to see what happens, yeah, where it all goes, what more can we find out? Because yeah. um, I think that, you know, I think there's going to be so much more to, there is so much more, as we talked about before, to learn. Mm. And um, um, I'm not a particularly a techie, but I think technology is going to open a lot of more doors about about what we're talking about about the universe doors to the universe yeah yeah because i think that the human curve keeps ramping up right and i think technology everything's getting faster and faster so yeah like whatever's going to happen in the next 10 years compared to what's going to happen the 10 years yeah, after that you know? yeah no we used to talk about that years ago about how it's gonna it's gonna start be it's gonna be exponential it's not gonna be a straight line right it's gonna be yeah the singularity is coming along yeah myself from even when I die I'm still in the universe I I just it becomes an inseparable thing except except with our minds as constructs like we were doing earlier about stepping outside the experience in a way so that you can see the totality of the experience while you're experiencing it those those may sound like two states of being simultaneously, but I now understand that to be the problems of our concepts or our language. We're probably groping for this single thing that we're trying to describe, but it's our logic and our minds that make us kind of divide in these two things, this subjective, this objective. We're looking down on the thing that we're in the middle of. Like, that's all true, but that's a, these are approximations of some state of being that I think we're talking about now, which is... Yes, you are separate. Yes, you are part of everything. Those both things. Yes, you are unique. Yes, you're the same shit as anybody else. Both of those things are true. 
I, they yeah, sound yeah. different because of our language, but they are the same damn thing. And that same damn thing is what I mean by I am the universe. How could I be out? How could I not be? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the extra explanation, PJ. Um, <laughs> does it make a little sense? Am I talking nutty? It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what I was also thinking, I know a lot of people um, could could say that, you know, seeing as our only experience of the universe is our own one, we, mm. could, we could and are the center of our own universe and maybe you're all in my universe and I'm in yours, you know, and, and, uh, maybe. or maybe I'm just a figment of someone else's universe's imagination. So, um, yeah, Me, yeah maybe, but, maybe. And there may be multiverses, hmm. um, but those are still part of every, these are just would all be smaller parts of something larger, whether it's a, yeah. a an atom or a universe. Yeah. I yeah. mean, these are just issues of scale and word choice, but I, I, I can't quite get my, and if, if there is another place besides the universe, it contains all of our multiverses, you know. Um, I, it's so beyond me to conceive of that. Okay, great. I'll, I'll deal with that when I get there. <laughs> Meanwhile, the things, the way we're talking about it now, makes a lot of sense to me, and is and is in touch. Is, is is how I feel about myself in the world when I'm when I'm really when I shut up. Like that is the feeling I experience. So it's right enough. It's accurate enough for, for my life so far. That's all I can say. Is that the book that you would recommend? If not, may I ask you to recommend a, another book I'm, for our listeners? I'm going to recommend a few books. Um, I have actually thought about this. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, On Anger would be one. That book changed my life because I did. You asked me earlier if I if I had always been how I am. If I'm, So everything's always been wonderful. No, I had a lot of anger. Mm. And this particular book was very important to me. Um, so that's one. This one may surprise you. It's C.S. Lewis. Wow. Okay. Excellent. And it's not Narnia. It's um, it's uh, surprised by joy and grief observed. And I those books were extremely important to me in so many ways. He talks about conversion experiences, which really, in a way, are the Satori experience. Right. That's the way I translate it. Mm. And The Grief Observed is just a beautiful book about the experience of losing someone. Right. And uh, so both of those books, The Gobi Desert <laughs> by Mildred Cable. Oh, my gosh, what a fabulous book. She's crossing the Gobi Desert in 1920 or 24. And... I mean, you see, these may seem random, but each of these books really, really made a huge difference in my life. And I just finished one that I must mention because I'd not read him before, Haldor Laxness, and an Icelandic author who got the Nobel Prize, I think, in 1955. It's a book called Independent People. And it is one of the very best novels I've ever read in my life. I just adore it. Fantastic. And of course, to Karchuk, 
um, I'm reading her right now. I'm reading uh, the books of Jacob. So those are the books that, that I think people would enjoy reading and would find extremely thought-provoking, all of them. And could we end with you telling me about a moment of Sartori or enlightenment, realization, clarity that you've experienced yourself, please? Well, that's a hard one. I, I, I did think about this. And what I realized that I've had moments that I would call moments of enlightenment. But I think... It started with reading Martin Buber when I was an undergraduate at Ohio State University and learning about something called the I-Thou experience. Mm -hmm. And I realized after understanding more about that idea that I could have those experiences if I allow myself to be open to them. And so what it is, is I guess, I guess I'd like to say that I have them almost every day now when I go into the woods. Mm. Because for me, the I-Thou experience and the, the enlightenment, if you will, the Satori experience is almost emerging with the, what, is, what could be perceived or said to be the other but really, I'm merging with this other. Yeah. So the I is now I, and vice versa, the thou is now I. It's, mm. And it's, it's, it's not even magical anymore. It's, it's suddenly finding that I am in the woods, that I have walked to the woods with the dog, without even consciously having the intention to be there. Yeah. And then I'm there. Mm. And then I'm with this mushroom growing out of the earth and I'm beholding it in a way I've never thought about or looked at, a mushroom. Yeah. And it's, it's just some kind of oneness, of, an awareness of those cells and my cells aren't that much different. And we we are part of one another. Yeah. That's yeah. that's my that's something I started to learn many years ago and I'm experiencing more and more. Yes. That's it. That's for me, that's what it is.